The Women's Center, written Wednesday, November 17, 2010, at 9.18 p.m. Now, it may seem trite that in the midst of a tragedy, the priority, or one priority, was to get my clothes organized for a Lynx convention. This was actually very important. The Lynx convention was less than two weeks away, and it was going to be a very big week for my mom. At the time, she was the sitting national vice president of the organization, and she was preparing to run for national president. A lot of people were going to be paying attention to her that week, and by default, me also. Clothes were important. Mom knew that I did not have the energy or the will to get myself wardrobe ready for the week, so she staked out Monday as the day that we would go to my apartment. She was planning to go through my closets and pick out my outfits for the assembly. So here it was Monday morning and we were preparing to go back to Trenton. Over the weekend, I'd sat, sent a text message to Danae and told her, I need to see the baby. Bring Naomi to see me on Monday. Danae was my 18-year-old AmeriCorps intern at the Women's Center, and Naomi was her six-month-old baby. It was go- if I was going to go back to my sad little lonely apartment, I needed a baby to be there. I was making very few requests during this time. I didn't care much about anything. I wasn't talking much. Kesner was still dead. But when I did want something like my tree, chicken salad, or to see a baby, it came out like a very direct demand. Since I was going to be in Trenton, I demanded that Danae come to see me and that she bring Naomi and Vicky also. Danae and Vicky were the only two remaining employees at the Women's Center. It was June 14th, and we were preparing to shut down operations on June 30th. Our program was state-funded, and shortly after Governor Chris Christie won, election, won the election in New Jersey, our funding was eliminated from the state budget. After June 30th, 2010, the Women's Center would no longer be the way it was, and I would have to say a painful goodbye to the remaining members of my staff and to my clients. I was planning to stay at the center through the summer to help close things out administratively. My plan was to leave in August and head to Rutgers to start my PhD in September. But since I had just found Kesner dead in his house, everything seemed up in the air and I didn't feel like doing another thing. I especially didn't feel like doing anything hard like saying goodbye to staff and clients and shutting down the program that I had grown to love. But the Women's Center hadn't closed yet. It was Monday, June 14th. Vicki and Danae were still at work and I was still their boss, so I asked them to shut down the office and come visit me at my apartment. While my mom was busy going through my closets, I would sit with them and hold the baby. I would be the only way, it would be the only way that I could stand being in my apartment. The Women's Center. After Princeton Seminary, I was planning to move home to Ohio. I loved my home church, Olivet, and it was my plan to go home and work on staff as a minister there. My pastor at the time, Dr. Otis Moss Jr., had always been such an important part of my life, and I wanted nothing more than to work with him. We had discussed me coming home to Olivet, but as the time drew near, I sensed hesitation. I soon realized why he wasn't making a commitment. It was because Dr. Moss was planning to retire. This would change everything. What would I do now? At the time, I was working part-time at a small faith-based nonprofit in Trenton as a caseworker for women living at and below the poverty line. And as graduation approached, I was extended the offer to become director of the program. My salary offer was less than my lowest bonus on Wall Street. I didn't know how I would live, 
but my passion for what I would be doing outweighed my perception of need, so I took the job. I started as the director in July 2008 with the challenge of trying to figure out how to make our services meaningful for women. I began working with a small group of women who were required to take our job skills class as a condition for welfare. They didn't want to be there, so they gave me a hard time. In order to get on the same page, I needed to make it fun. I bought in a radio and several old school CDs. I had women in my class that ranged from age 18 to 65, and the one thing that could connect us all was music. I started teaching the job skills class with Cameo, Soul to Soul, and Shaka Khan playing in the background. Soon, work became fun. Women would be moving their shoulders to the beat and working at the same time. The music set a mood. People were having a good time in my class. I was earning their trust. And I didn't feel the need to teach every day. Sometimes I liked to sit around from, with the women in my class and just talk. They shared their experiences with me and I shared mine with them. We had women's circles. Some days I simply allowed space for downtime and casual conversation, time to just sit around the table and share. It was so cool. Some classes would not be structured at all. Rather, we would just talk about the things going on in our lives. Here, the focus was not on work, but family, relationships, and concern about community and connecting. I also taught some job readiness classes in the prison system. I did the same activities with incarcerated women that I was doing with my welfare-to-work class. I brought my radio and CDs with me everywhere I went. Before long, the Women's Center was building and growing. The cornerstone of our work was imparting wisdom and hospitality. If women walked away from my classes with nothing else, they left knowing the four agreements by heart. Be impeccable with your word. Don't assume. Don't take anything personally. Always do your best. I also made sure to affirm them constantly. I would recite the Maya Angelou poem, Phenomenal Woman, a poem I learned by heart when I was 14. And as I shared it with them, I let each woman know just how phenomenal that I thought that they were. I was beginning to love my work, but I needed some help. I began to pray for the right people to come and help me, and they did. First Julie, then Tina, then Jesse, then Vicky, then Terry, then Danae, then Linda. Soon we were a full staff. It had all come together so beautifully and in only 18 months, and amazing things were happening with the Women's Center. This was my calling. This was my life's work, the sole reason for my being. This was it. Our climactic moment was the day that Naomi was born. We were all so excited about the coming of this baby, and she was finally here. We were a family, and now we had a baby. All was well in the world. That is until Governor Chris Christie cut our funding. My life's work was ending, and I was only 30. <laughs> Why? It was all very dramatic. As soon as I got the news about the budget cut, I sent an email to Mara, the owner of the lovely country house that I've been writing about. She and her husband own and operate a branding and communication strategy firm, and in that moment, I knew that she could be an invaluable resource to us. My mom is always saying that a good leader knows what they don't know. I knew that I needed a communication strategy, and I didn't know how to do it. Mara responded immediately. The next morning, we were on a 6 a.m. conference call with her and her husband, and the two of them walked me through a step, the steps of developing a strategy to save the center. 
Our strategy included communication with key supporters, a lobbying campaign with state legislators, an aggressive grant writing strategy, a media campaign, a client letter writing initiative, a t-shirt campaign, and an effort to engage national celebrities like Oprah and Mary J. Blige. Our entire strategy centered around the tagline, prevention is cheaper than incarceration. At the rate that New Jersey spends per prisoner per year, we argued that if we just kept three women out of prison, then our program was paid for. My staff was fully on board and they were helping me as much as they could. Jesse and I applied to many funders. We developed, promotional, we developed a promotional video and wrote letters to Oprah, but nothing was working. When it appeared that this was really out of our hands, Jesse and I took the staff to the country house. We had a day-long retreat there and we focused on transitioning and next steps. The retreat was our goodbye, but, it was not, but I was not going out without a fight. My last stand was at the conference at Rutgers on June 9th. I sat on the panel in my orange protest t-shirt and made one more plea on behalf of our sweet little center. I was down to just two staff members at this point and I traveled to the conference alone. But I gave one final argument for why we should not be zeroed out. We were different, we were special, we prioritized hospitality, we treated women like human beings. We were gracious and welcoming. We created a safe place for women to open up and share their stories. We were sensitive, diverse, and culturally competent. We were special. As I sat on the conference panel and I told our story to the audience, I fought back tears. The most important thing I had ever done was ending. And then I came home that afternoon and I found Kesner dead. Perspective. Oh. So there it was, June 14th. Kesner was dead and I didn't care about anything anymore. I had no more fight left in me. When mom and I walked into my apartment, my white sparkle gown was out and hanging in the same place where I'd left it. I was planning to wear it to the Kappa Ball that weekend, and I was at home trying it on while Kesner was at home dying. I looked at the dress with disgust and sat down on my couch miserably. Vicky and Danae showed up with a bottle of wine and some sandwiches, and most importantly, they brought a baby. I held sweet Naomi in my lap as we talked. They told me that my boss at the nonprofit had been questioning them about my whereabouts, but no one had called me directly to see how I was doing. Upon overhearing this, mom said, they don't care about you, and they're supposed to be ministers, hypocrites, that's it. I'm taking you home to Ohio with me. She was disgusted at their lack of concern, and I was too. The program was fabulous, but the host agency leadership left a lot to be desired. Vicki and Danae were disgusted with them also. By this time, we were all tired of working for the agency. There, were too, there was too much messiness, and we had bumped heads ideologically, on several occasions. Vicki and Danae jumped on the bandwagon with mom and made plans to collect my belongings from the office and bring them to me. I was not returning to work, it was decided. After the funeral, I was going home to Cleveland with my mom. Mom began to organize my clothes for the Lynx convention and for the rest of the summer. She worked in my bedroom while I sat and held the baby. I didn't care about my clothes. Whatever she chose would be fine, nothing mattered. Vicki and Danae left and mom and I were preparing to leave when we got a text from Kesner's brother. Mom had been communicating with him all weekend about different details leading to the funeral. We had been trying to reach Kesner's mom also, but nobody was answering her phone. His brother said that he wanted to stop by my apartment and see me. He wanted to make sure that I had some input into the funeral. I was so honored by that. 
He came by and asked me about any scriptures that Kesner and I read together and any songs that we sang. None of the scriptures that we read seemed appropriate for a funeral, but I did suggest two songs, Just As I Am Without One Plea and Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Kesner's brother and I agreed on those two songs. He also showed me an obituary that had my name listed in it as Kesner's girlfriend. And he said that they were putting together a slideshow of pictures, and he asked me for any pictures that I may want to include. I had lots of pictures, and I let him upload some, and I told him that I would email some more to him later that night. There were also two things that I wanted from him, my tree and a painting. By this time, we had connected with Mara. She said, yes, we could plant Hope, my tree, at her house. She had picked out just the right spot for Hope. Now I just needed to get permission to dig Hope up from Kesner's backyard. I asked his brother for my tree, and at first he said no, he wanted it. But then he thought about that, and then he changed his mind. Kesner's fraternity brother was already planning to dig up the tree for me anyway. I also asked about the painting. Kesner was an oil painter, and he had a collection of original pieces around his house. There was one in particular that I wanted. It was the only painting that he created while we were together. I felt it captured the energy of our love. It was striking and had a vibrant splattering of red in it. I loved it from the minute I saw it. I told Kesner how much I loved it. It was my favorite. He hung it in his bedroom. I wanted that painting so badly I would treasure it forever. His brother said no. He wanted it. He wanted to keep all of Kesner's paintings. I decided not to press my luck then. He had agreed to deliver my tree to Mara's, and in that moment, the tree was my priority. I haven't given up on the painting. Before he left, Mom and I asked how he was doing. So much weight had fallen on him to plan everything, and we were concerned. He said he was fine. I think he needed that stuff to keep him busy. But he did mention the fact that they had found all that medicine in Kesner's house, high blood pressure medication and insulin needles. It looks like he wasn't taking his medication. No, I thought. They're wrong. I wish people would stop with this nonsense. Kesner would never let this happen intentionally.